This is The Long Cut, a podcast by Booster Stage. I'm your host, Ryan, and I'm on a journey to look behind the curtain of the overnight success. On this show, we talk with founders, business owners, entrepreneurs, and innovators who have successfully launched, built, grown, and sometimes exited SaaS businesses that solved a problem. Ready? Let's get started. I first met Alan Branch at LessConf in 2008, or maybe it was 2009. Alan's not the kind of person you easily forget. He's big and friendly and jovial and really, really generous. Alan's company, Less Everything, used to put on these really weird, quirky conferences called LessConf. They were pretty much unlike any kind of business conference that was around in the 2000s, and uh, it kind of blazed the trail for other conferences that, that we kind of take for granted now. But in those days, there was pretty much just, you know, the big corporate conferences and a few scattered ones. And there weren't really any regional small business conferences. So LessConf came in and they put together these these conferences for small business owners and Internet entrepreneurs and SaaS businesses. And they were really interesting and really fun to go to. There was always something out of the ordinary. But the idea was it was less. It was a different kind of a conference which was kind of a rejection of the big corporate conference ethos with stiff executives giving speeches about boring topics. LessConf was different every year, and it was always entertaining. It was always a lot of fun to go to. Alan co-founded Less Everything and later Less Accounting with his business partner, Steve Bristol, who passed away in 2017. So I caught up with Alan to talk about what it was like to start a SaaS business in the 2000s and what were some of the secrets to their success. We're on with Alan Branch. He's the co-founder of Less Everything. And did I get that right, Alan, co-founder? Yeah, I think at this point I'm the founder uh, since Steve passed away. But uh, co-founder still works. I enjoy that title as well. I don't really, I'm not a big fan of titles. So Okay, well, we won't, we'll just call you Alan then. Yeah, call me whatever you like. Just we've always, for supper time. We've always thought of you as, as one of you know, the team of, of Less Everything. So and we, miss, we miss Steve. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you get into entrepreneurship in the first place? It's almost like entrepreneurship is a destination, right? I don't, I don't really think of it like that. I, my family, my grandfather started car washes and restaurants in the 1940s, which a lot of them are still running today. He had like 14 restaurants and a couple car washes back when car washes were a business that no one knew anything about. Banks wouldn't give loans for it. They thought car, car washes weren't even a thing. And my dad subsequently ran those. My aunt ran a couple of them. My uncle ran some restaurants. And so I grew up in this, that, my normal was entrepreneurship. It wasn't like I was going to some place called entrepreneurship. That was just seeing my dad work on weekends. Uh, we would count money from the car, self-serve car wash for him at night, counting quarters and rolling quarters. And uh, the weekends, and I was homeschooled. And, and when I was when I would be bad at, at home as a eleven year old or twelve year old, my mom would send me to the car wash to fold towels as punishment. Nice. <laughs> and so, I just kind of grew up in it. It was my normal. I didn't realize. I don't think my parents sort of realized they were giving me a sandbox to play in at the car wash. And my dad let me do sales uh, at the car wash at a very young age. So I would be talking to adults, and I thought I was a manager at probably eleven years old. I wore a manager's shirt at the car wash and I would just kind of um, tell people what to do at a really young age uh, because that's what my dad would do. And so I just copied everything he did, 
Uh, he would let me sit in on when he would fire people or hire people and interview people. And so I, he just let me kind of took me along and took my brothers and sisters along to conventions. And so it was my, it was my sense of normal. So any of you parents out there listening, uh, what a great lesson <laughs> that you could give to your kids to let them kind of in on the, the background noise of how of running a business. So how did then, how did less everything come up out of that? Less everything. I was, uh, Ooh, it's kind of a long story. That was like uh, 2007. I was doing some design work. I came out of college, got a job, and that lasted for about a year. And I started telling them how to run their business. They didn't like that. And so I quickly left and started my own business. Again, that felt normal to me. It didn't feel like I was jumping into some chasm or it didn't feel like a big leap because entrepreneurship felt normal to me. Uh, but I started my own design company and started doing logos and got bigger. That was like 2006 and just, or excuse me, yeah, 2005, 2006. And I kept getting bigger and bigger and more projects and heavier projects and bigger projects and more software related type stuff. And I was hiring developers and I, Ruby on Rails was new and I had SEO'd for Ruby on Rails in Jacksonville and Atlanta and Orlando. And just, I was living in Birmingham, Alabama, and I just had SEO'd for a bunch of cities and Meanwhile, the same time, Stephen Bristol, who was my business partner for 11 years, at the time we didn't know each other. He didn't know me, but he had was had just moved to Jacksonville, was uh, searching for Ruby on Rails in Jacksonville, and I popped up, and he contacted me and said, "Hey, do you need anyone to help you?" And I said, "What's your hourly rate?" He said, "$50 an hour." I said, "I cannot afford that. That is an extreme rate." And uh, and so uh, we started doing some. Well, he did. He actually came and saved a project for me that was behind. And he was, uh, he, I, I bid it out things fixed bid uh, very naively. I didn't know much about software and, and, and had limited scope. And, and the clients were kind of pushing me around and adding scope creep. And, and he was billing hourly. And he would push back and say, you know, this isn't in the scope. And you're basically paying me to do it. I can build this. But, you know, you're not going to make money. You're losing money on this. And he was the first person that ever looked out for my best interest in the business world. And I, I, I recognized that and appreciated that. And uh, within a few months, we had joined up together and uh, started building uh, bigger and bigger software projects uh, with the intention of the clients funding our own products. Uh, we looked at client work as the means to finance our own product builds. And we immediately, we actually started working on less accounting. The idea for less accounting was I was sitting at my accountant's uh, office and he was saying, you need to categorize your expenses. This is 2006. And I said, like, what do you mean? He said, well, there's like 25 different categories. I was like, oh, I could do that like in a spreadsheet or something. That's not hard. And uh, he said, yeah, you can build your own software. And I was like, oh, you're right, I could. And uh, Steve had a background. His parents were entrepreneurs. His mom was an accountant. And my uncle's an accountant. And so we even before we started coming together as partners, we had talked about and started working on less accounting as being like an expense tracker. That was probably, that was 2006. So we, uh, we kind of formed less everything in 2007, but we had started working on less accounting in 2006. And we worked on it nights and weekends uh, for about six months uh, before we started kind of putting the word out and collecting email addresses. Uh, at that time, you know, now it's normal to put up a splash page and collect email addresses or, you know, Facebook pages. But in 2006, Twitter, I think it was just starting to come around. Steve was like user number 5,000 on Twitter. And we started reaching out to people and it felt like a chat room is really what it felt like. And uh, we put, I was like, well, we need to start getting customers and things. And so let's get an email form. And there was no Wufu that we knew about or anything, whatever the email address collector rocket 
launch or whatever they're called now and uh, launch pages or whatever they're called. And um, we just put a little email form up there and started collecting email addresses and emailing podcasters. We emailed the web 2.0 show, which was like the, the big podcast at the time. And they promoted us and Basecamp had just rolled around and uh, we called ourselves the Basecamp for accounting. And that was a big, uh, a big leap. That was kind of the golden age of SaaS business, wasn't it? Because you could pretty much just uh, tell people that you had an online software product and people's you know, eyes would get really wide and say, wow, that's neat and innovative. And it was pretty easy to get on people's radar because it wasn't, you know, everything wasn't so saturated as it was today. There wasn't as much noise. The flip side of that is, though, we didn't have Stripe. We didn't have any of these nice APIs. Um, you know, we were dealing with authorized.net and there was no churn buster and there's no any of these automated email apps. And it was uh, the dark ages of, I think there was even a few, we, there was a few tables and even I think it was probably even a nested table in the first list accounting. Um, that's when it was still okay to do that kind of stuff. And so it was, uh, it was easy to get email, you'd email people and they would be, oh, cool. Thanks for letting me know. And now you get frowned upon for that kind of stuff. But it was certainly harder to build a web product. Uh, the actual building of the web product, yes, harder then. That's the way it was with me too. When, when I started Donor Tools, I just made, you know, I started programming it. And then six months later, like you said, I started telling people about it. And everybody was really excited about it. Whereas uh, today, of course, if I tried to do that same thing, it's like, well, you got to actually start marketing it before you build it. How did you and Steve find the time to work on this project if you were also working on client work? From 2007 to 2000 and I'd say 10, Steve and I both worked a lot of hours. And by a lot of hours, I mean uh, six days a week, easily. Every day we were working 12 hours a day. I remember one night I apologized for going to bed at, before midnight. Uh, and we were <laughs> up at like seven every morning working. And, but... It, it was fun and we were excited and it felt like the whole world was at our fingertips. And, but it was a lot of compromises. It was a lot of, you know, telling people I can't go do this thing. I need to work a lot of missed sleep health suffered. I think Steve said he worked like 7,000 hours one year. Oh my God. Um, yeah, we, we, we worked a lot. I don't have good advice on, I don't know if I have that in me now to work that many hours. I'm 37 now. Um, the 27 year old Alan, the 30 year old Alan had a lot of more fire to work a lot of hours. <laughs> the gray haired Alan is a lot more like, Ooh, mm, I don't know about that. Uh, I like going to bed at nine. Hey, watch um, it, you young buck. <laughs> well, you know that. So it's like, and then once you get, my son was like six months old then, well, he was born in 2006. So when your kids are really young, you can always just be like, oh, they won't remember any of this hard work. And so you don't feel like you're sacrificing that relationship. But now certainly my kids are nine and 11 and they like give me dirty looks that I work in the weekends and that kind of stuff. Yeah. It definitely does change a little bit when you have older kids. Uh, I suppose when your kids are, are really young, maybe it's, it's a little bit easier and it's definitely harder and not optimal to put in overtime. I think you can do that for a while. There's this, there's this like entrepreneurial uh, enthusiasm that happens when you first start a business and when you're, <laughs> you're in your twenties, especially uh, that you can kind of ride that wave and maybe, maybe milk it a little bit. Oh, for sure. I, I think startups are definitely do it when you're young. Uh, you have less, uh, less over, less baggage, less overhead, less relationships you need to you know, nurture. And uh, yeah, I, I, I agree. 
yeah, it's a younger man's game. <laughs> yeah, although I don't know. I think I think I've seen several um, older entrepreneurs, and I am one, I guess now. Golly, it feels weird to say that, but um, you know, I'm in my 40s, and so and I'm starting a business, and it does take a lot of energy. It really does. But there's ways to stoke that fire again. I think uh, it's harder though. There is a lot more. There's a lot more at stake because my family's at stake. You know, I have more financial requirements. I can't just go out and live on a $2,000 a month salary for a year because I have kids to feed. Uh, whereas, you know, 15 years ago, I could have. So it's definitely harder when you get older. So it's something always to consider. But I think, I think it's still possible to start a business. You just have to find, I think, that right balance between putting in those hours. And I think also having a co-founder really helps. It definitely helps. It's a sounding board. They're, they're a person that, that tells you when you need to go to sleep early. And they, forg- they, they give you forgiveness or they push you. I would add to that, if I were to do a new startup, new tech startup now, I would be a little wiser about how I spent my time. Because, you know, once you go through it once, you kind of learn like where to optimize your time. And so I don't think I would need to work 70 hours a week. Yeah. So what sort of things would you do differently? I'd push more to marketing. It's, it's, you're, you could have a really terrible product uh, as long as your marketing is good and your onboarding is good. You can have a, it's, it's not a, it's less about the product. You know, carpenters see every, see everything as a nail because uh, their hammer is our tool and um, software developers love building features and they don't like marketing as much. And so I would push more into marketing and onboarding. And then I would go after a much smaller targeted audience. I would be the accounting app for pet groomers or the accounting app for plumbers not the accounting app for all small businesses. Yeah. Also, maybe not an accounting app because an accounting app is a pretty huge undertaking. It is a beast. Yes. And so I think, uh, you know, as a 20, late 20s, Steve was, a, Steve was seven years older than me and, and maybe he could have saved us from this, but I, I would say being less ambitious of, of the market and even of the, of, the, of the product you want to build because then you have to maintain the product too. It's not just about getting it built. It's about maintaining it and keeping it quick and bug free or as bug free as you can and all those kind of things too. So the technical debt of features is, is heavy. So how long did it take you to get to the point where less accounting was really paying the bills? Well, it always made money um, and it grew very, very slowly. What we didn't do, well, I'd say in 2010, that was a 10 or 11, we realized that it was making enough money that we could live off of it. But we, what we had was kind of two teams. We had a, a, a client services team and a less accounting team. And if we just kind of got rid of the client services team, we, it's hard to like merge over people. And what we ended up doing was saying, hey, here's how much money it's making. Who really wants to work here? And a couple of them were like, eh, it's time for us to go. And we're like, cool, we'll help you get jobs. And then we kind of went over to less accounting. But I would say it was 2011 uh, when less accounting really was able to support a team of people. Um, but in that meantime, as you're going there, you're making thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars, but you still can't afford to pay for marketing. You can't afford to uh, hire the next person. So there's always this imbalance. It's a, it's almost like client, I mean, I guess it is kind of client services where you either have too much inventory, which is team members time or, and not enough money or vice versa. Client services are, the, is this balance of inventory. And SaaS is a balance of cash flow. So you're always like trying to make sure you can, you know, we have enough cash flow to hire somebody. We have enough cash flow. Oh, well, now we hired somebody. Now we have no money to spend on marketing. 
And so it's this balance of cash flow and predicting cash flow analysis stuff. Cash flow is king in SaaS because that's you don't really end up having an asset until you've saved up some buffer. And hopefully you can save up a little bit of extra every month. But there's sometimes there's these um, variations in your monthly spend and, or in your monthly revenue. And so you'll have months where you go into your savings and then months where you have excess. And so um, it's not just a lot of people think SaaS is kind of this um, holy grail of business models, but it really isn't. It's got it's just got different problems from other business models that you have to account for. Yeah, there's no there's no perfect business. I had a buddy who's a pharmaceutical rep and he's uh he wants to kind of stop working. He's got a little bit of cash and he's like, What business is I can put money into it and not do anything, get money back? I'm like, I'll let you know when I find that business. <laughs> Every business is work, no matter what it is. I mean, and even though the advantage of tech, we all know this, this is like an infinite amount of scaling. But every business is a lot of work and it's really what do you want to spend your time doing? And maybe that's tech, maybe that's something else. And and uh, there's some great things about tech and SaaS businesses. And we noticed with less accounting that there were seasons. So it was, a, it was a seasonal business. And it's kind of obvious at this point, well, duh, around tax season. But we found that um, and even with client services that people didn't spend much money in May and June and July. They didn't change accounting products. They didn't buy client services stuff because there was always someone out of the office. Uh, we would get a huge surge of signups in October and November and December and January. Uh, and then we had to land those customers through tax season and kind of call them through tax season, get them onboarded and get that inertia going. So it was a seasonal business. So it would be up and down. It wasn't just a steady growth. There were some months where we would go down. A lot of people would get their books up less accounting and, and export them and then be like, well, I'll suffer through that next year in tax season. I've been using, uh, I hate to admit this, especially on the show with you, but I've been using QuickBooks for a long time. And the cost of sure. switching is just so painful because especially you don't want to do it anytime after, you know, three months after the end of the, or the start of the fiscal year, because then you just have way too much stuff to go back and put in. And so I, well, I would say to my advice, just not even necessarily with accounting, maybe this is applicable to other, other verticals is, you know, a, accounting product, people don't see much value in that. You know, you look at Wave or Zero. People are not paying hundreds of dollars a month for those products. And I had a client, Alyssa Accounting, years ago say, $36 a month? That is outrageous. And I said, I can't take my family to Starbucks for $36. <laughs> I, I buy my home internet connections, 180 And we're talking about accounting software. And so I would say, look at, look at businesses, build, build products that people have a high value. And then... I love, if you, if you know who Ron Papil is, who did the infomercials, he did this uh, convection oven and it was said, it was like, set it and forget it. That was his tagline, set it and forget it. And I think the best SaaS products are ones that people set it up and then they forget about it. They use it, but they don't have to log in and they don't have to use it every day or every week. Uh, people who are sending invoices and proposals and tracking things, they're in that app a couple times a week. Yeah, it's one of those things like with changing the oil in your car, it it's you got to do it, but it doesn't really feel like it adds a lot of value to your car. But it does add a lot of value because it extends the life of your car. And if you don't do it, you're going to have to buy a new car or replace your engine. Um, with accounting, it's kind of the same thing. It it adds value to your business and then it helps you, you know, run your business more efficiently. But yeah, it's it's not that pleasant to do, you know, and and it and it's something that you you kind of you kind of dread uh, once a month you got to go in or however often you do 
got to go in and balance your books. And the hardest value proposition, you know, so we do, we do videos for software companies uh, now. And the hardest value proposition to convince someone of is it saves you time because people typically undervalue their time, especially freelancers. Which is ironic because your time is your only non-renewable resource. I would say anyone who undervalues their time is someone typically who isn't making, making much money. Uh, and so I would go after people who realize their time is very valuable. Uh, I would perhaps do an accounting app for, for lawyers, <laughs> someone like that. But design and software programmers and people like that, especially when they're freelancers, typically don't really value their time that well, unless they've been on the block for a long time. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I think, you know, finding that value and creating that value for customers is is where you really are able to charge a lot of money. And so maybe it isn't, the like you said, maybe it isn't the fact that it's accounting software, but it's the people who are using it. It's easier for an attorney to understand the value of their time than it is maybe for a freelancer. And there probably are some other segments too like that. So what kind of, let's go back to uh, less accounting. What sorts of things did you do in the early days for marketing? And then like, how did that evolve over the years? Oh my gosh. Uh, so we're talking about like 2008, <laughs> 10 years ago. Uh, and it was a totally different time. Twitter was new. We would just uh, do things like, well, early days of Twitter, where you just message people and be like, hey, check this thing out. I know you have a blog. I'd love you to talk about it. All the tactics now that people go like, oh, that's lame, worked. And people were happy to get a, a DM from somebody that followed them on Twitter and showed them a product. People were like, oh, cool, man. Thanks for connecting. Let's meet at the conference. You know, they, now that's like, oh, you're a spammer. You're, that's cheesy. Uh, but it worked and people were excited about it. And the first less accounting customers were really our friends on Twitter and people that we would meet. We would give out. We did lots of little silly stuff. Like we had business cards with unicorns on them that we'd hand to people that said, you know, Steve Martin had a business card that we copied. It basically said like, this card is proof that you met Steve Martin. And we did something similar to that. You guys had some really memorable marketing copy, or, you know, like things that you gave away, which I remember getting t-shirts from you at the conferences that I still have in my closet. Yeah, we did a lot of, we probably gave away 20,000 shirts in 10 years. <laughs> gave away a lot of shirts. But at the time, you know, now that's normal and duh. At the time, people were, were, the, the sort of scene of software, especially accounting software, were embroidered polo shirts, right? And koozies and uh, thumb drives. And so we come in with a weird, cool shirt that someone actually wants to wear that doesn't have our logo plastered across the front. And people were like, oh, this is so refreshing. Now to design a shirt that speaks to your tribe uh, or and kind of gives them a mantra is normal. But in 2010, 11, 12, that was like, oh my gosh, yes, I'll wear this shirt that says quit your day job. Yeah. A lot of times it feels kind of forced though. Uh, Cause I think sometimes these companies are maybe they're, maybe they're trying to copy you, <laughs> but it feels a little bit forced and unnatural. And I felt whenever I got those things from you guys, I thought this is definitely, I don't know, maybe it's Steve, but this is definitely Alan who designed this. <laughs> Well, the quit your day, specifically the quit your day job shirt, I was just, I, I just follow a lot of people on Instagram. I like Instagram because it's creators. And I saw this guy who did this illustration and said, quit your day job. And so I messaged him and I said, Hey, I want to buy the rights to this. He said, well, I don't want to sell the rights. And so, well, can I get a licensing? Can I license uh, 500 shirts? He said, sure. I said, how about a hundred bucks? 
He said, yes. Nice. And so we printed 500 shirts. I subsequently had bought their whole rights to it for like 500 bucks later. But, you know, it never was all the little things we did. We, we gave away pizzas to, to meetups and we traveled and we traveled cheaply. And it was everything, everything with the litmus test of marketing for, for Steve and I was, oh, is that cool? Cool is being, will people talk about it and do they like it? It makes them feel good. And will it make us go broke? No. And will we get sued? And if that was a maybe, that was actually a bonus. Uh, <laughs> and so it was just, you know, it was fun and carefree. And I think we were, and we, and I still am very transparent about things that I'm working on. And people tend to like that because there's less mystery. And, and so uh, people just kind of responded to it. And we've always been, we've always had a lot of friends and people that want to help and, and, but we just done, we've done a lot of random things and we've done an ice cream card at conferences for a while where I basically would show up the day before and, and set up a big ice cream Sunday bar. And, and I would, and I would email the conference go, conference organizer and say, Hey, can I set up an ice cream bar? And a lot of them just thought that would be a fun way to add to the conference. And so it would cost like, I, I would, I was already traveling to the conference and I would add basically $200 worth of ice cream to the, to the expenses of the trip. But I'd get to meet a whole lot of people, but I got to make their Sundays. So I'd make these gigantic Sundays for people, and uh, they could never finish them because they were so big. But ice cream super cheap, but it would give me an opportunity to chat with people. I wasn't trying to sell them less accounting. I was just trying to be nice and here's some ice cream, and then I'd meet them, and I'd introduce them to somebody else. And, you know, just kind of being nice. Being nice was our marketing, and it tended to work. And, and we also hosted conferences and the conferences end up making us money. And so things kind of, we found out ways to make money and, and it just kind of all worked. Being nice, I think, is is pretty important. And you kind of, nobody forgets those interactions with you guys. Nobody forgets when somebody is nice to them. And especially um, when it's unexpected. And you kind of engineered some of those opportunities too, because like you just mentioned, you you set up your own conferences. So there were these opportunities to meet people and create, create relationships with people not necessarily just for the purpose of selling them something, because that's usually pretty transparent. Yeah, you spot that right away. People can know what they're being sold to, totally. Yeah. So what was the idea behind the conferences? Like, what drove that? Is, was it because you just loved meeting people, or was there something else behind it? I'll, I'll tell you what I've realized now. I realize now that I would much rather host a dinner party than go to someone else's. Uh, I feel more, I'm very socially awkward, and I'd much rather have it at my house in my own environment that I can control and that I feel comfortable in than go to someone else's house where I feel like I don't know what's going on. I'm with you there. Yeah. And so it was a little bit of that un- unknowingly, but when we went to go, in 2009, when we had our first conference, most of the conferences that we were going to were not about startups certainly not unless they're in the valley but nothing east coast there were very little text there was no micro comp there was no bacon biz there's none of those kind of conferences it was all enterprise level or tech startup stuff in the valley that, that didn't feel like it was for us and so the first conference we thought well how much would it cost to throw this little weird event where can we throw it okay let's throw it in jacksonville we found a venue for a couple thousand dollars we asked our friends to speak um, these are friends being people who we've met before. And it was like Gary Vaynerchuk and Mike McDermott of FreshBooks and David Hauser of Grasshopper and Owen and Des uh, at the time were just consultants in Ireland, but I had met them before and they, I just thought they were fascinating people. You know, 10 years later, they, they founded Intercom, the smashing success of Intercom. Um, but, you know, we just would meet people. I meet people and just hear stories and I just go, wow, I just you need to share that story. And at the time there just wasn't really that many events. And um, I think we had a hundred people show up 
And so we broke even. And none of the speakers, Derek, it was Derek Sivers of CD Baby. And, but he was still running CD Baby at the time and wasn't super duper famous like he is now. And these are friends and they didn't charge us anything to speak. And it kind of made sense and it was fun. And, and, but it wasn't like, you know, less comp sponsored by less accounting. I think we may have put our logo somewhere, um, but we didn't do a demo of the product. It was not, it wasn't about less accounting. Uh, maybe that lack of focus hurt us eventually. <laughs> I don't know, but we've always just done random things and they've kind of worked out and they kind of make sense and they're fun. And, and, uh, the goal being, uh, I don't, I don't think most things in business have a direct correlation. Uh, I think it's about putting out good things and having fun and, and things just tend to work out. Yeah. It looks like there's a lot of luck involved sometimes, but I think that people create their own serendipity. Yeah. Well, I mean, even like right now, right? So like, is there a direct correlation for me spending 30 minutes on the phone with you right now? How am I going to make money off of it? No. But does it feel fun? Yes. Do we want to catch up? Yes. And is it a big deal to do this? No, it's not. So let's do it. Right. So that, that was, that, that sort of litmus test has always worked out well. And, and we just do a whole bunch of stuff and it tends to work. Um, so, and that's, it's much more of a gut reaction. It's a lot scarier. Uh, it's hard to raise money on that. If you're trying to raise money, like, oh, we're going to run our business off of our gut reaction. You know, they want scientific returns on investments and high strategies. And yeah, well, you're not going to raise any VC that way, but that's kind of not what it's about, is it? Well, cool. So I know you're working on uh, a warehome and that's pretty cool, but I don't know if we have time to get into that today. Tell us, you know, what's next for you and where can people find out more about what you're up to online? I don't really have a good place to say. I guess my Twitter account, which I don't really use as much. I haven't blogged in a while. You've got a YouTube channel, don't you? I do, kind. We don't really promote that. You can see our Wear Home series on the Lowe's Home Improvement YouTube channels. Okay, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, that the Lowe's, if you go to YouTube, just type in Lowe's Home Improvement. We sold Lowe's Home Improvement, a 10-episode video series on our home build. It's super cool. They, so just for those of you who don't know this, uh, Alan and his family bought this warehouse in Jacksonville and they've turned it into a home and it's amazing. Uh, it's worth watching those videos because uh, he takes you through how they put, put it together and, and what they, you know, their vision for it. And it's really neat looking home. Yeah. And that's, that's another thing. It's like, um, so we're shooting more shows for Lowe's now and uh, we're doing more. It's, it's branded content marketing. And so maybe that's maybe that's what I'll do for a few years. I don't really know. It, you know things tend to work out, and and the the Wear Home series was uh, I wouldn't say a huge slam dunk financially, but it was something the kids are homeschooled, and I thought, wow, I've never shot a show before. I don't even know what that is. Let's figure that out. And wouldn't that be fun for the kids to be like? And it's like the world's best home home movies. <laughs> we have a home movie, you know, like three hours of documentary on our home build. And then hopefully the kids will look back on it and be like, show their kids one day. And, and so, so did they come in there with like a film crew and you know, it was our film crew. So we have a video production company called less films that we started uh, years and years ago. So you, you actually used less films to do that. Oh yeah. We, we, the whole thing was, uh, we, I sold it. We shot a pilot. I don't even know what a pilot was. And kind of figured that out and we emailed Lowe's to see if they want to buy a pilot and we emailed a bunch of people and got some free product and worked some contracts out with Lowe's and and learned a lot about what uh, PR companies look for and things like that and just kind of figured it out and um, uh, the, the whole content marketing 
industry is really interesting and, and obviously massively growing. And, um, and so I, I'm kind of looking at that and, and less films. We typically, we shot videos, mostly explainer videos for software companies. And so we weren't a big live action company that shot shows and things like that, but we just kind of figured it out. And, uh, we not, not necessarily scripted the episodes. We had talking points and, uh, how we want the episode to flow, what kind of content in each episode, but totally another one that is just figured out as you go kind of things. That's neat. So I remember watching a video or a, um, reading an interview with uh, Robin Williams a while back. And one of the things he said that really stuck out to me was that he would always say yes to almost every opportunity to be in it, almost any movie. And so he was just in a ton of movies. He was very prolific. And he credited that as one of the reasons why he was so successful because earlier in his career, he was just in every movie. And so he had opportunities to meet all the directors and all the other actors. And he made those relationships that served him well later when he became more successful. And I, I think I just thought that was really interesting because a lot of actors are more choosy and they want to be in only the, you know, the blockbuster films or whatever. But it kind of reminds me of your approach that you've you've just been really prolific with your friendships. You're very generous with your time, with your expertise. And that has served you better than being choosy and opened up many opportunities and serendipity that you might not have have had otherwise if you'd been maybe more stingy or choosy with your time i would absolutely agree to that it's um yeah especially if you said hey we're gonna travel to alaska i'd be like and we're gonna do a podcast there i'd be like i don't know if i can make that right <laughs> but getting on getting on uh zencaster.com and uh chatting for a few minutes is not a big deal so we do and even early on we we, we volunteered on open source and open source projects and it was just about meeting people, but not, but not in like some sort of scheme or like working the room or how do I leverage this person or, oh, who does Ryan know that he could introduce me to? It was never like that. It never is because that feels weird to me. And all this just feels natural. Like it, it's just like, oh, yeah, I like to meet that person. Are they you have any interesting stories? Let's hear interesting stories. Oh, that would make a great conference. You should speak at the conference. You know, that kind of thing. It's just I love hearing stories. I love meeting people, nice people, cool people. And people want to, people typically want to help other people. The other thing we would do would ask for help, but not in some sort of like weird way, or I hopefully it's not in a weird way, but certainly if I said, you know, I have no problem going on Twitter and being like, Hey, I need a video client for the X month. And people want to help. Every time I do that, I'll land $20,000 in work because people want to help. And if they like you and, and they know people that need that service. And as long as you're being transparent about it and just saying, Hey, here's what I need. People want to help. That's the Benjamin Franklin approach. Yeah. I haven't heard that. Oh, really? So Benjamin Franklin, and I don't remember if it was this, if this was in his, um, it may be in his autobiography. Anyway, there's this anecdote of Benjamin Franklin. And he said, whenever he would move to a new place, he would go to his neighbors and ask them to do him a favor rather than asking if he could help them in any way, he would ask them to do him a small favor, like can I borrow a cup of sugar or something simple like that. And he said what he found was that people were more likely to, to people were more likely to extend friendship to him after they had done him a favor because it gave them permission to count on him for a return favor. Oh my God. And it gave them an opportunity to serve him in a way that was really simple and easy. But it opened up that relationship in a way that asking to help them would have felt more contrived maybe, or more forward. So I always thought that was an interesting story. It's almost like when you're asking for help, you're putting yourself in like a, 
so was it subordinate relationship? Like you're letting the other person know that they're in charge. You're really opening yourself up to vulnerability because you know you don't have something and they do, and you need them. So to be needed is really a basic human emotion. Everybody wants to be needed or wanted. And so when you ask somebody to help you, you're asking them to need you. Wow, that's deep, man. You're like a, you're like a professor. You've taught me two things about myself I didn't even know. <laughs> cool. Well, that's probably a good place to wrap it up. Alan, I really have enjoyed talking to you, man. Absolutely. You too. Let's catch up anytime. Alan and Steve's experience with less accounting is actually pretty normal. It takes a long time to ramp up momentum in any business, even a SaaS business. SaaS is still kind of the holy grail of business models. Everybody wants a SaaS. There's something about it that's attractive. Maybe it's the fact that it's kind of turnkey. It looks like something that you can build once and provide many times to lots of different clients. The idea is that a SaaS business kind of gets you off the hamster wheel of having to do client work. But the reality is that there is no perfect business. Like Alan said, every business is going to have work involved. There are SaaS businesses that I know of that have dozens or even hundreds of employees just to service one product. That doesn't sound like no work to me. I think our goal as business owners is not to do no work, but to get off the hamster wheel, to build a business that really runs without us so that we're business owners, not just employees in our own business. I want to say a very special thank you to Alan for coming on the program. I really enjoyed talking to him, and I hope that you'll have a chance to meet him someday. Go watch those videos on the Lowe's Home Improvement channel. It's really neat to see what Alan and his family have done to that warehouse, turning it into a, a ware home. I'll put the links to that in the show notes. So if you want to check that out, go to thelongcut.fm slash Alan Branch. That's A-L-L-A-N Branch. I also want to say a special thank you to everybody who's reviewed and rated our program on iTunes. That's really exciting. I always get such a rush out of watching those uh, reviews come in. So if you enjoy this podcast, please go up on iTunes and leave us a five-star review to let us know. That's it for this episode. We'll talk to you next week on The Long Cut. You've been listening to The Long Cut, a podcast by Booster Stage. Music by The Long Cut. Used with permission. Check them out at thelongcut.com. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Join me next week for another conversation where we take a dive into the steps that it took to build an overnight success. Until then, be sure to visit thelongcut.fm and submit your questions. As always, I invite you to get in touch with me so I can help you on your own business journey. I promise I respond to every message I get. Thanks for listening.